Open your Bibles with me, please, to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. May the Lord bless us to consider some wholesome words of the Lord Jesus Christ for a few minutes this morning. We'll have a break for fellowship and refreshment. We'll take up a few more. Matthew chapter 11. I'm going to start at verse 1 to give you a little context of some words of the Lord Jesus Christ with which He has taken hold of my heart and soul and mind in recent days. There are very few words, but I want you to grasp them, and I want them to convict us. But beginning at verse 1, And it came to pass, when Jesus had made an end of commanding His twelve disciples, He departed thence to teach and to preach in their cities. Now when John had heard in the prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples, and said unto him, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said unto them, Go and show John again those things which ye do hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, And the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he, whosoever shall not be offended in me. Without distracting you about thinking of why John would ask such a question. And there are good reasons why John could ask such a question. He could have been asking them for his disciples who were very jealous for his ministry versus that of the Lord Jesus Christ. They thought they had quite a great master. They gave their lives to fasting like the the Pharisees did, but Jesus' disciples didn't. And so there was a contrast there, but I don't want to get into that. John had one ministry, and that was to announce the Lord Jesus Christ, and he did it. And he could be giving us an example here of weakness and faith toward the end of his life in remembering something that God had shown him clearly earlier. But that is not important. What I want you to get is the sixth verse. Blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. Jesus caused a great deal of offense in Israel. They didn't like him. They had dreamed of a Messiah that would come like David, who threw off the Philistines, who would throw off the Romans. They wanted a carnal, natural deliverer. They wanted someone visually magnificent. They wanted someone that would raise an army and deliver Israel from the bondage of an occupying force. They wanted somebody glorious in appearance. They wanted somebody from nobility. They wanted somebody that was rich. They wanted somebody that was powerful. They wanted somebody that was charismatic. And in all those measures... He was despised and rejected of men. There was nothing in him that we would desire him from a natural standpoint. Remember, Simeon held the baby and told Mary, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel as a sign that shall be spoken against. John would tell us three times there was a division among the people because of him. He is, we are told in Romans 9.33, in 1 Peter chapter 2, he was a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Blessed is he, whosoever is not offended in me. So I ask you, as I did in the preparatory email yesterday, are you ever ashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you ever ashamed of his words? Are you ever ashamed of his person? Are you ever ashamed of his choice in action? He turned another cheek. Do you prefer the Charles Bronson demented mentality of an idiot that has to strike back? If somebody smacks you on one cheek, no harm has been done except to your pride. So Jesus taught, turn the other cheek. Now when they nailed him to a cross, when he was innocent... 
He came back in the, with the Roman armies and tore their nation to pieces. Right. He said, if you fall on me, you'll be broken. But if I fall on you, you'll be ground to powder. He said that when the Lord of the vineyard sent his son and they killed the son, what would that Lord do to those men? He would miserably destroy them. Right. Just make sure you always keep the balance of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is nothing effeminate about the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. It takes the biggest man to turn another cheek to a small, little, personal offense. So what if someone smacks you on a cheek? Give him the other one. Give him the other two. Blessed is he. Does that offend you that he turned another cheek? Does it offend you that they were so poor his mother had to bring a poor woman's offering for her purification after her, the birth of Jesus? It offended the Jews. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul said, We preach Christ crucified unto the Jews... A stumbling block. Unto the Greeks, foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ. The power of God and the wisdom of God. There are three categories of men. Unregenerate Jews, Jesus was a stumbling block. Because he didn't match their carnal ideas of a national deliverer. Unto the Greeks, Foolishness, because he did not match their standard of worldly wisdom of their Greek philosophers. To those that are regenerate, some Jews, some Greeks, Gentiles like us, Jesus Christ was the power and the wisdom of God. We are not offended in him. We cannot be offended. Are you afraid to say the name of Jesus in public? When you watch those athletes give their testimonies, they say, I thank God for all the gifts I have. You know, I've told you about that humility before. I want to thank God for all the gifts He's given me that He hasn't given other men. You know, it sounds like a Pharisee praying. Oftentimes it comes out that way, a backdoor compliment where they try to show a little bit of religion. God, who is God? Is Allah God? Is Vishnu God? If you just use the word God, what God are we talking about? The great spirit of the American Indian? What God are we talking about? When we talk about Jesus Christ, guess what? You have just drawn a line in the sand. And that line in the sand is very definite. There's no Hindu that admits anything about Jesus of Nazareth. There's no Muslim that wants to admit much about Jesus of Nazareth. So when you say the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is that name that devils tremble before because God has given all authority and all judgment to the Son. They know who to tremble before because Jesus has been given the assignment of destroying the devil, which he did on the cross, and casting the devil into the lake of fire, which he shall do shortly. Are you ever ashamed of that name? We can hide behind the name of God. Our, our God's name is Jehovah. You want to get plain? You want to offend some Muslims? Then call him by his name. He's not Allah, and he's not Allah's cousin. As a former president wanted you to believe. He is Jehovah God, I am that I am, and his son is the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Blessed is he, whosoever shall not be offended in me. You want to have a blessed life? Never be offended about Jesus of Nazareth. Never be offended to say, Jesus wouldn't do that. That is the greatest name that there is in heaven or in earth. Therefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus. Every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Don't ever be ashamed of that name. I am sorry that there are other Jesuses in this world. I am sorry that charismatics blow that name around like it's Santa Claus. I am sorry. But the Jesus of the Bible was one great, glorious God-man. And we should never be offended in Him. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm a Christian, and I'm thankful to be a Christian. I follow Jesus of Nazareth. Blessed is he, whosoever shall not be offended in me. You disciples of John, you're blessed. 
If you won't be offended in what you see. I know I come from a humble background. I know that I don't have an army. But look at what you do see. The deaf hear. The blind see. The dumb speak. And the dead live. And the gospel is preached to the poor for no money. Go tell John what you see and hear. Then let him answer that. And blessed is he, including John, if he's not offended in me. I've been gripped by that. There were times in my life when I was a young man, when I was a foolish man. And I told you in my preparatory email, it was mostly because I knew the wrong Jesus at that time. Not the one of the Bible who has all authority and power in heaven and in earth. But the Arminian one. I was ashamed of his name. Bless the God of heaven. I hope I'll never be ashamed of his name again. Are you ashamed of the name of Jesus? It is the greatest name on earth. Right. If, I'm sorry that you have had to have heard it so many times in a wrong context. That name is the English form of the Greek transliteration of Jehoshua. Jehovah is salvation. Right. Is what that name means. It is one glorious name. What does he have to say to us today? Sorry for that kind of an introduction. But you know, the Bible is filled with prophecies in the Old Testament and declarations in the New that Jesus would be offensive to men. There was nothing about him that would cause us to desire him from a natural standpoint. But to those who are spiritually changed, there is everything about him to cause us to desire him. We are considering the wholesome words... Of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's consider the Lord Jesus Christ for a few minutes as a prophet. Simon Peter wishes he wasn't quite as accurate as he was. Because Jesus told Simon Peter, Peter, before the cock crows to end this night, you will have denied me three times. While you're telling all your buddies here that you would never deny me and that you would even go to death on my behalf, I'm telling prophet, you'll deny me. And did that prophecy come true? Oh yes, it came true. Did Peter know it came true when he heard the cock crow? Yes, Peter knew that it had come true. Jesus was the prophet that God raised up to the nation that he had prophesied that he would, that I turned you to a few weeks ago. I will raise up a prophet like unto Moses, and he shall teach you, and you will hear him in all things. And whosoever will not hear him shall be destroyed from among the people. And that was true. When we turn to Matthew chapter 11, and we're already there, we started out with a little introduction about John the Baptist. But look at verse 7. Jesus said to the multitudes concerning John, What went ye out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind? What what did you all go out in the wilderness to see? Were you looking for weeds to be blowing around? But what went ye out for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they that wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what went ye out for to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you, and more than a prophet. For this is he, of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if ye will receive it, and if ye will receive it, this is Elias which was for to come. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. If any man teach otherwise and consent not to the wholesome words of our Lord Jesus Christ, he is proud, knowing nothing. John the Baptist was the fulfillment of Elijah prophesied in the last two verses of the book of Malachi, which are the last two verses of the Old Testament. Jesus Christ, as a great prophet, showed the fulfillment of those words. And yet the world today says we are still waiting for the arrival of Enoch and Elijah, or Moses and Elijah. They can't agree because it's all made up in their imaginations. 
There's no certain verses that they can turn to to prove any of it. They're still waiting for Elijah the prophet to come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. The great and terrible day of the Lord is 2,000 years old when Jesus leveled the city of Jerusalem for not knowing the time of their visitation when the Son of God was among them. But John the Baptist was the fulfillment and Jesus said, If ye will receive it. And if you won't receive it, what does the Bible say about you? You are proud. You know nothing. You are destitute of the truth. You are a corrupt man. 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 5. And from such we ought to withdraw ourselves. If he will receive it, this is Elias. Elias is the Greek form of the word Elijah. Whenever you find Elijah spoken of in the New Testament, he is spelled out E-L-I-A-S, Elias. This is Elijah. Elijah the prophet was to come. In Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, and Jesus says, This is Elijah, which was for to come. The prophesied Elijah, 400 years ago, when Malachi wrote that prophecy, this is him. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. And if you don't have ears to hear, then go ahead and read your Schofield Bible and be a futurist and think that Elijah still has to come. Jesus was a prophet with no peer. He could explain the prophecies of the Old Testament from his first spoken words in Nazareth synagogue when he said, This day, these scriptures are fulfilled in your midst. When he fulfilled Isaiah 61, 1 through 3, he could take Psalm 110. The Lord said unto my Lord and explain what those words meant because he was a prophet with no peer. And he told us who the prophet Elijah was. John the Baptist. But notice how he says it. He knows that most men won't receive it. That's right. He knows that most don't have ears to hear it. Do you receive it? Do you have ears to hear it? Amen. This is Elijah, John the Baptist. Look at chapter 17. Same, same point. We've been over this before. I want you to think about the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. And each point I make, if I fail to remind you, you remember it for me. If any man teach otherwise, and if any man consent not... To what Jesus said, and the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, he doesn't know anything, and we ought to stay away from him. There's lots of false teachers today. Right. Most, most Baptists believe that Elijah the prophet has not yet come. He's still coming, because the Schofield Bible tells them that little lie. Right. Matthew chapter 17 Jesus took Peter, James, and John up into the Mount of Transfiguration, was, was, was transfigured before them so that he was very glorious. And Moses and Elijah came and spoke with him. And you know the exchange that took place there. On the way down from this mountaintop, verse 10, the three disciples asked him, saying, Why then say the scribes that Elias must first come? You know, we just saw Elijah, but he hasn't come yet to Israel. And you're claiming to be the Christ. Why do the scribes say Elijah? They knew, they knew the truth, didn't they? Elijah has to come first. So what's going on here? Jesus answered and said to them, Elias truly shall first come and restore all things. But I say unto you, these are the words of Jesus. But I say unto you that Elias is come already. And they knew him not but have done unto him whatsoever they listed, likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that he spake unto them of John the Baptist. Is the Bible, could the Bible be any plainer? How could Jesus word it to help you better? The prophesied Elijah the prophet from the last two verses of the Old Testament is John the Baptist. The scribes said he had to come first. The disciples got a little confused because they saw Jesus, saw this momentary appearance of Elijah, and they said, why didn't Elijah come first? The scribes said he has to come first. Jesus said he did come first, but no one recognized him. Then they understood, oh, it was John the Baptist. Amen. Jesus was a prophet. And so his words govern our understanding of prophecy. Look at Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. And what a prophet he was. Oh, he told those disciples, if they've hated me, I hate you. Did you read that? Have you read that in John 15 before? Did they hate 
The apostles? Yes. If they've persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Did they persecute the apostles? They're going, to, they're going to take you into prison. They're going to put you to death. Did they put them to death? Everything he prophesied. Luke chapter 19, verse 41. And when he was come near, Luke 19, 41, when he was come near, he beheld the city, the city of Jerusalem, and wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. For the days shall come upon thee, that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee, and compass thee round, and keep thee in on every side, and shall lay thee even with the ground, and thy children within thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. Now that's a prophecy. He wept over the city of Jerusalem and saw its children, in other passages tell us that, and told them, and said to them, you had peace offered to you. You could have had peace. But because you've rejected the Lord of glory, the Son of God, your enemies are going to come and put a trench about you. And the Romans did this just a few years later and lay thee even with the ground. There wouldn't be two stones left attached, is how Jesus would put it in another passage that we're about to turn to in a second. This is a prophecy. This is a prophecy that John the Baptist started in Matthew chapter 3, and Jesus continued to the very moment that he was hauling his cross up Calvary's hill. About the judgment that was coming upon Jerusalem, Israel, and the Jews for rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ. This was because they knew not the time of their visitation. The God of glory visited them, and they rejected that visitation. And therefore God was going to lay them even with the ground, and thy children within thee. Please keep a few of these words in mind. Then turn to Luke 23, which is just a couple pages away. Luke chapter 23. Jesus has now transferred the cross to Simon the Cyrenian, and he's traveling up Calvary's hill. And there followed him a great company of people, Luke 23, 27, and of women, which also bewailed and lamented him. Luke 23, 28. But Jesus turning unto them said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children, that generation alive, or and those that would be added to it in the coming few years. For, behold... The days are coming in the which they shall say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bear, and the paps which never gave suck. Then shall they begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in a green tree, what shall be done in the dry? Daughters of Jerusalem, don't be crying about me. You should be crying about yourselves and your children because my prophecy of Luke 19, when it is fulfilled, is going to make you wish you could call mountains down to cover you from the judgment that's coming on this city and the children within it. Because I'm going to lay it even with the ground for not knowing the time of their visitation. If If they are treating me so horribly and cruelly when I am innocent in a green tree, When times are prosperous and good, and the presence of the Spirit of God is in the nation, what in the world are they going to be like in a dry tree when I'm not here, and it's not prosperous, and they're all hedged in from every side, and the the presence of the Spirit of God is gone? Then you're going to wish you'd never had children. You're going to wish you'd never nursed a baby. This is the prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at chapter 20. Same book. We can stay in Luke for, for just a few prophecies here. Luke chapter 20. This is, you know this. I've already referred to it, but I hope you know it. A certain man planted a vineyard. Verse 9, he began to speak to the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard. This is the God of glory. And led it forth to husbandmen. These are the Jews. And went into a far country for a long time. And then, and so forth. You know that. He sent servants to get some fruits from the vineyard. They stoned the, the servants and mistreated them. And then he sent his son, saying, Surely they'll respect my son. 
And they crucified him because they said, this is the heir. Let's get rid of him so the vineyard can be ours. And we can do whatever we want with our nation of Israel. Verse 15. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. What therefore shall the Lord of the vineyard do unto them? This is the question for the audience. Jesus gives the answer. He shall come and destroy those husbandmen, these husbandmen, and shall give the vineyard to others. That being the Gentiles. He'll destroy those husbandmen, that is the Jews, and shall give the vineyard, that is the kingdom of God, to others, that is the Gentiles, us. And when they heard it, they said, God forbid. And he beheld them and said, what is this then that is written? Don't you even know your own Bibles that foretells this? The stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. Because the Jewish builders rejected the Lord Jesus Christ, he became the head of the corner of God's kingdom. Whosoever shall fall upon that stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. And the Lord Jesus Christ ground the Jewish nation to powder. The chief priests and the scribes the same hour sought to lay hands on him, and they feared the people. For they perceived that he had spoken this parable against them. See, they understood Bible prophecy a whole lot better than the Schofield Bible does. They knew that this prophecy was not about Gentiles 2,050 years later. They knew that this prophecy was about them. That they would be the ones that would kill the Lord Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ would come and destroy them because he was the head of the corner. He would grind them to powder. What a prophet! What a prophet! Look at Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. Jesus condemned his generation from the beginning of his ministry to the end of his ministry. Those that were then living and those that would be born to them in that period of time that we call a generation that would reject him and not know the time of his visitation. John first of all identified that generation of vipers in Matthew chapter 3. Jesus kept it up and then it was fulfilled upon them. Because the Apostle Paul would tell us even in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 that the wrath of God had come upon them to the uttermost. In Luke chapter 9, verse 26, For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he shall come in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. What coming is under consideration? Follow the next verse. But I tell you of a truth. There be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God. All three Gospels have this. There was some event coming that was far enough away that some people would die, but not too far away that there wouldn't be some yet alive. Now about how long would that take to get rid of a good number in this congregation and yet leaving some that would still be alive? That was a judgment that was coming upon that nation In 40 years, when the Romans destroyed, just like Daniel had prophesied, the prince that shall come shall bring an army and destroy this city. And they did. Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21. When Jesus gave the details about this prophecy, which were instigated by the disciples telling him to admire the stones of the temple, as the first few verses of chapter 21 tell us, Verse 5 tells us that, as some spake of the temple, Luke 21, 5, how it was adorned with goodly stones and gifts, he said, As for these things which ye behold, the days will come in the which there shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Why are you getting so excited about these stones? I just told you in chapter 19 I'm going to lay it even with the ground. And now I'm telling you the days are coming in which there's not going to be two stones attached. We aren't talking about some stupid temple yet to be built in Jerusalem. We're talking about the temple of Zerubbabel that was added to by Herod that was existence in the, existing in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if any man teach otherwise and consent not to these wholesome words, he's proud and doesn't know anything. Because this is Jesus as a prophet. Notice what he says about his words. Verse 32. Luke 21, 32. He's gone through the details of talking about false prophets coming that would try to deceive the people that they were going to be delivered from the Romans. They would tell them that there was a, the Christ had come, that he was out in the desert, there was, that he was in a secret place inside the city. There were going to be false prophets that would mislead them with lots of false messages about deliverance. 
he tells, he warns them in this passage that an army would come. Verse 20, when you shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. And that the tribulation that was coming would be horrible. Verse 23, but woe unto them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days. Does that help you understand Luke 23? See, it's, it's good to read the whole book of Luke. So that you get chapter 23, chapter 21, chapter 19, chapter 9, chapter 20, and we read these verses and how they all tie together. That a woman is going to wish that she didn't have children and she wasn't nursing when this tribulation came upon them. And this tribulation was to tear the stones of the temple then existing apart, which have been torn apart for 1939 years. Verse 32, Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass away till all be fulfilled. Everything that I've just listed to you in Luke 21 about the armies coming and destroying this temple will be fulfilled. Then here's what I really want. Right here. Verse 33. Heaven and earth shall pass away. But my words shall not pass away. Sometimes we have a temptation to use Luke 21.33 as a proof of inspiration or preservation of the Bible. And that's not its purpose. The purpose of Luke 21.33 is you're going to have a lot of false prophets arise telling you that there's going to be a deliverance and the Romans aren't going to destroy you. But heaven and earth may pass away, and they shall pass away. But my words of prophecy about the city of Jerusalem shall not pass away. The days are coming in which it will be leveled to the ground. Because you knew not the time of your visitation, and you rejected the heir of that vineyard, the Lord of glory. That is, the, the Pharisees knew that he spake of them, and anyone who has ears to hear knows what he's speaking of. Because Jesus was a prophet without a peer. My, one of my favorite verses about all of this is uh, Matthew twenty four fifteen. Same same passage as Luke twenty one. Just these words. It's verse fourteen. Matthew twenty four fourteen. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness. Then shall the end come. The greatest witness. The visible demonstration to the whole world that Jesus Christ was a prophet without peer and the Son of God and the Lord of glory. One of the greatest proofs was that he declared in detail the timing that some would be dead, but some would be alive. The nature, armies would come, encompass the city, dig trenches, lay it even with the ground. The detail, tearing apart every stone. Lots of false prophets talking about deliverance, but the city would be wiped out. And this gospel that he's preaching in Matthew 24, going over those details... This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness. A witness that I am the Son of God and I prophesied these events. Then shall the end come. And that end is not the end we're looking for. That's the end we rejoice to know came 1939 years ago. The end of the city of Jerusalem. The end of the temple. The end of the Levitical priesthood and its ceremonies. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. What a prophet. What a prophet. And you know, there's so many... If you've been to Sunday school, you know, all your days in Sunday school, you never heard a thing about the destruction of Jerusalem. You never heard a thing about it. You read a Schofield Bible, and C.I. Schofield, that Jew who wanted to promote Jewish fables, denied all these testimonies of the Lord Jesus Christ against that nation. And all the books that are written on prophecy... 90% of which are from a futuristic standpoint, take all these verses and throw them out in the future. They have no meaning whatsoever to anyone. No meaning. What should we do? Make sure our women don't nurse their babies just in case that Jesus comes and the rapture occurs. You don't want to be nursing when you you go up in the rapture. Listen, why don't you want to meet Jesus nursing a baby? They're so ignorant. Do you know that's why the Bible says he is proud, knowing nothing. If your city was going to be encompassed with armies and you had to go out and live in the mountains of Judea to survive for several months, would you want to be nursing a baby? Is that, can, you, can you figure that out? Yeah. Would you want it to be wintertime, as Matthew 24 says? No. Do you, do, you, do you think I care if Jesus comes in the winter? Listen, I'd like him to come in the winter to get me out of the snow, to get me out of the cold. Why, why, why can't they read the Bible and think? If any man 
teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words. He's proud knowing nothing. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for such a wonderful testimony. Amen. <clears throat> you, wouldn't want it, you wouldn't want it to be in the winter. Who wants to go try to survive in a cave in the winter? Let me survive in a cave in July. I wouldn't want to have a whole bunch of little children. What do I do with a whole bunch of little children trying to survive in a cave? Jesus gave some of the most wonderful practical advice to save his followers from the judgment that was coming on that city for rejecting him. Oh, let's talk about how personal he was. What's a one word? Is there one word in the red writing, any place in the Bible that you like that's a personal name? Mary. Mary. Do you like that? Look at John chapter 20. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, is so personal. Let's not be offended in Him. He foretold one of the greatest, the greatest tribulation the world has ever seen that came to pass, just as He described it. There's been no nation ever since that suffered anything like that. The, the nation of Japan, during World War II, Hiroshima, 40,000, 80,000 maybe, in one second of time. Hamburg, Germany. What do you want to refer to? Hamburg, Germany, 70,000? Firebombing for several days and several nights by Allied bombing? How about 1.1 million starving to death and eating their babies in the city of Jerusalem? Jesus said there would be no tribulation. There had been no tribulation like it, nor would there be after it. In one city where people were reduced to so much pain, suffering, and misery. Because they rejected the Lord of glory. Who can, who can be offended in such a Savior? You know, he says, if you'll fall on me, which is not to be offended, but to repent. If you'll fall on me, you'll be broken, but you'll be a blessed man. Because blessed is he, whosoever, that shall not be offended in me. But if I have to fall on you because you reject my words, I'll grind you to powder. Right. I, I, can you follow a Savior like that? Amen. Wow. When he pulls this thing, or it comes out of here... He wrecks vengeance. When he's on his white horse, it's dripping with red blood of his enemies because he's trampling the fierceness. He's, he's trampling the wine press of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. Right. That is a warrior. That is a prince. And yet, when he speaks to us, his grapes, his, his lips are filled with grace. That's right. Psalm 45 and verse 2. Righteousness is the scepter of his kingdom. Who can be offended in him? That's why I wanted to go through some of that. I know you've heard it before. I wanted to go through that because this gospel, the one I just told you about, shall be preached in all the world for a witness. Then shall the end come, and all the Gentiles got to read about it in the newspapers, and all the Jews that were converted in other places got to read about it in the newspapers, and know that the Lord of glory's prophecy had been fulfilled, and his enemies destroyed, and that vineyard given to another nation, you and me. John chapter 20 and verse 11 tells us that Mary had come to the sepulcher of Jesus. She was weeping. She stooped down. She looked in. She saw two angels. They said to her, why are you crying? She said, because they've taken away my Lord. She thought that somebody had stolen the body of Jesus. And when she had thus said, verse 14, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing and knew not that it was Jesus. Why? Because he held it from her eyes. She would have known him very well. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him. And I will take him away. Jesus saith unto her, Mary, she turned herself and saith unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. Do you like that? That that is nice. You say, well, I'm not Mary. You're better. You're, you're, You're equal to Mary. You're better than Mary. Can I prove that you're better than Mary? Jesus said, Blessed are they that see and believe that I'm he. You know, his wounds. But more blessed are they that don't see and believe. Can he speak your name and my name in the same day without getting confused? Can he speak your name, my name, and her name in the same week without getting confused? 
easily. As we talked about at the couple's retreat, there are six billion pawns on a chessboard called planet Earth. And the Lord Jesus Christ moves them all in the events of their lives to bring them together to their spouse. Then lays his word before them to see how they're going to treat their spouse. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Mark 16. Mark 16, how personal he was. In Mark 16, we have two more evidences of how personal he was. One's related to this one. Mark 16 and verse 9. Mark 16, 9. Now, when Jesus was risen early the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene out of whom he had cast seven devils, and we just read the account of him appearing to her first. But here we have the Holy Spirit giving us words, telling us about how that occurred, and to make sure that we understand she was the first one to see the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Don't ever think, I'm a woman, I don't count. Mary was a woman, and Mary counted. She was first to see the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, but I'm a man, and I don't want to be left out. Then let's back up to verse 7. The angels told the disciples, go your way. The angels told the women, forgive me, go your way, tell his disciples and Peter that he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall ye see him as he said unto you. There's Peter singled out that Jesus wanted Peter to hear his name from the women. The women would arrive with 11 disciples and they would say, Jesus spoke to us. And said that he's coming to see all of you. And Peter, he called you by name. That he's coming to see you. I think Peter's heart probably sank a little bit. That he was going to have to see the Lord that he had just denied. But the Lord encouraged him and appeared to him. Wonderful. This is how personal it is. How about this one? Jesus walking along in the midst of a great multitude and looks up into a sycamore tree. Where there's a little man hiding. A little man about five foot eight, five foot nine. A little man hiding up in a sycamore tree because he was too short of stature to see the Lord Jesus Christ in a crowd. And Jesus comes along and there's a man hiding up there in the leaves, peering down at the crowd and at Jesus. And Jesus stops and says, Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, come down. I want to go to your house to eat today. How's that for personal? Can Jesus call Mary, Peter, and Zacchaeus and not get confused? Can he know all three? Can he know you too, Anna? He can. Daily. Hourly. Every night. Isn't that wonderful? Jesus is personal. These are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the Lord of glory that can speak judgment on a city. And he's the best friend, as we sang in that song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, You'll Ever Have. All in the same person. That makes him doubly, triply, infinitely good. The Lord of glory, our friend. Praise the Lord. Look at Matthew chapter 12. How do you you like his priorities? I love his priorities because I'm simple. I want things laid out for me. This is more important than that is. So that I can line them up in my head right. So that I can know what appears in the first row and the first column of whatever spreadsheet is in my head. I love priorities. I don't like confusion. I don't like a lot of interpretation. I want the Lord to tell me. And He does tell us. His disciples have rubbed off some corn in the field because they were hungry. The Pharisees judged them as saying they shouldn't be harvesting on the Sabbath day. And Jesus said, have you guys ever read the Bible? Have you never read the Bible? How David went and ate the showbread that was only lawful for the priests to eat? I love that kind of reasoning. And then he said this, Matthew chapter 12, verse 7. But if ye had known what this meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, ye would not have condemned the guiltless. My disciples are guiltless. Yes, they're doing a little bit of harvesting on your Sabbath day. But I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And I'm telling you that mercy is more important to me than your ceremonial observance of the Sabbath day. Your strictness does not impress me. Because you're hypocrites anyway. These men are hungry. So they're showing themselves a little bit of kindness by showing some mercy to themselves by eating, even though it's on the Sabbath day. What he doesn't say here is what he says in Mark 2, when he says the Sabbath 
was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Man is more important than the Sabbath. I gave you the Sabbath so that every seven days you could have one completely off of work. Therefore, if you can rest better on the Sabbath day by rubbing a little corn because you are traveling and you didn't have the opportunity for preparing in advance because you didn't know where you were going to be on the Sabbath day, then go ahead and eat it because mercy is more important to me than the Sabbath day. This is the same God represented by His prophet that had a man killed for picking up sticks on the Sabbath day. But that man picked up those sticks, and it tells us, presumptuously. I love that kind of wisdom. I love that kind of wisdom, and I'll hang on that kind of wisdom. And I will bet my ministry and my life on that kind of wisdom. If I run into a case that is too hard for me to figure out, if we were to ever, and I hope we never do, run into a divorce case that we can't truly figure out, I don't care if it lines up perfectly with Matthew 5 about committing adultery or fornication or not. I don't care if it doesn't in Matthew 19. I don't need that. Because I'm going to think like the Lord Jesus Christ instead of a Pharisee. The Pharisee is one who wants everything in black and white but no wisdom. The Pharisee wants everything in black and white but no mercy. I'm not going to be unmerciful to someone in a terrible, abusive, hurtful, negative, hopeless marriage. Oh, this, this thing will serve you wherever you need to. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. Mercy is more important to God. And somebody will say, well, you're presuming, to you're presuming to overrule God's commandments of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And I say, you bet I am. You bet I am. Praise God he gave us the wisdom to overrule that. That's how David knew he could make a deli sandwich from the showbread. That's why Jesus raised that example. How did David know... David knew about Nadab and Abihu offering strange fire once the Lord in Luke chapter 10, and they were burned by the fire of God. David knew about moving the Ark of the Covenant the wrong way and having a man named Uzzah die. David knew it rather personally. But David knew that when he was hungry, he could eat the showbread. The showbread was only lawful for the priest to eat. How did he know that? Because David knew Hosea 6, 6 before it was written. And David knew Matthew 12, 7 before it was written. And David knew what his son Jesus would teach before he taught it. That mercy was more important than sacrifice. That that showbread, in ordinary circumstances, was to be eaten by the priest. But in extraordinary circumstances, when he was hungry, running for his life, he could eat it. That is wisdom. That is wonderful, glorious wisdom. I'll always hang on a, on a principle of mercy like that because that's where Jesus Christ put his ministry and that's where I'll put mine. They're, they're, listen, there's a million Pharisees and there always will be. They want black and white because they got them from Rome. There's only one church I know that started the doctrine that there's no divorce for any cause. It's the Roman Catholic Church. We're going to get to that in just a couple minutes. We're going to go with the mercy. You know, the Pharisees picked on disciples who were hungry tra in travel who took an ear of corn and rubbed something to eat because they were hungry. That is unmerciful wickedness. God hates that. He does not care that you think you're trying to protect his law. Anyway. You know, that's not the only time it's used. Look at chapter 9 in Matthew. Matthew chapter 9. Marriage was made for man, not man for marriage. Marriage isn't so important that God thinks all men ought to be beaten into submission into it. Marriage was made for man. Marriage is to make man happy. Marriage is to provide man a companion. Marriage is to provide man the antidote to fornication. You know, that's wisdom. That is wisdom. This is a priority. Mar the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. I don't think that sevens are a neat number, and therefore you ought to worship sevens for your entire life. Jesus said, no, that's not the way it is. I love you men, and so I gave you every seventh day off. And if you can do something on the seventh day to provide greater rest for yourself and refreshment, then do it. Marriage was made for man. Man wasn't made for marriage. There's nothing neat or sacred about marriage in and of itself. It was just made for man because man was lonely. <coughs> Matthew chapter 9. Look at verse 11. Matthew nine eleven. Jesus has just called Matthew 
to be his disciple. We come to verse 11, when the Pharisees saw it, that is, they saw Jesus eating with publicans and sinners. They said unto his disciples, why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, they that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. But go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He takes Hosea 6, 6. That's where he got those words from. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. Because he was a man of the Bible. He used it once in Matthew 12, 7. We backed up to chapter 9. We're finding him using it again. And here he's using it that he, as a physician, wanted to be around sinners where he could help them. He didn't want to be around the self-righteous. Because mercy is more important than sacrifice. Showing mercy to sinners who were repentant was more important than pretending you were holier than thou than those sinners. There he uses it again. And you know, there's other examples in the Bible. We know what the first commandment is. We know what the second commandment is. And it's just like it. And all the law and the prophets hang on two commandments. We know that judgment, mercy, and faith are more important than paying tithe. Because Matthew 23, 23 tells us that. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, for ye pay tithes of mint and eyes and cumin, but ye have omitted the weightier weightier matters of the law. Judgment, mercy, oh, mercy again. Judgment, mercy, and faith. For these ought ye to have done and not to have left the others undone. You should do both, but what's weightier and what's more important? This is the Lord Jesus Christ. If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, he is proud and knoweth nothing. I am nothing without the words of Jesus Christ. But I will hang on the words of Jesus Christ. I will hang on the principles of the Lord Jesus Christ. I do not care how many or how vicious Pharisees will arise. I will hang on the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because He was the Son of God. He was the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the Lord of marriage. He is the Lord of mercy. And He tells me how important it is. It's more important than sacrifice. I am not going to get hung up on black and white laws where mercy is at stake. I will get hung up on black and white laws where there is no mercy at stake. I will get hung up on black and white laws when someone sins presumptuously against the Sabbath commandment or any other commandment like the Sabbath. But where there's mercy involved and it can be shown without compromising the integrity of God's Word, we will err on the side of mercy. I hope that's very plain and clear in your mind. Here's the problem. Our minds are pharisaical by nature. The whole world wants you to be Pharisees. Jesus said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which meant their doctrine. Because we would like everything with a nice square hole for our nice square peg so that we can stick our square peg into a square hole and prove that we are idiots. The only people that look for a square hole for a square peg are idiots that don't want to think. Because they have a file where they can file off the edges and stick it in a round hole. Because you know what that is called? When you take a a square peg and shave off its edges and get it in a round hole, it's called wisdom. We don't compromise. You compromise when you're a Pharisee mentality. Because Jesus said mercy is more important. Do you understand? Godly compromise and ungodly compromise. Did David compromise by eating the showbread that was lawful for only the priest to eat? Did he compromise? If you want to use that word compromise, he compromised. He broke the law. Did God approve of him breaking the law? Absolutely. Did he know he could break the law? Could he presume upon God's mercy to break the law without being presumptuous about breaking the law? Yes. Are you able to follow all that? It's wonderful. I don't know how to tell you. It's priceless. It's priceless. I don't want to go to some seminary and be told the black and white. I want to go to the seminary of Jesus and have him teach me the wisdom of mercy. The priorities of God's law. Judgment, mercy, and faith are more important than tithes. I hope I've said enough. The reason I'm I'm going on about it is because I don't want you to be confused. It's wonderful. These are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope it's plain. Jesus sat and ate with sinners. Why? Because he wanted to open himself up to temptation to sin? No. Because he wanted his evil communications corrupted? No. Why? Because he wanted to help repentant sinners repent and enter the kingdom of heaven. And if you have friends that are sinners because you are helping them repent and in the process of it, 
then you can justify it for a few minutes. But if you are with friends just because you're comfortable with them, then you are sinning against 1 Corinthians 15:33, Be not deceived, evil communications corrupt good manners. Jesus never did that. Jesus would say, as soon as he knew that somebody wasn't repentant, they'd be blind leaders of the blind, let them both fall into the ditch. Matthew chapter 15. Can I get started on something? We'll go to our break. Just, just let me get started. Look at Matthew chapter 6. It's close at hand. The Lord Jesus Christ saw the greatest enemy of true Christianity that would arise. The greatest, en- the greatest enemy of initial Christianity, original Christianity, apostolic Christianity was the Jews. Wherever they went, the Jews persecuted the Christians. And they would get the Romans stirred up to persecute the Christians. The pagan Romans would do some of that. But then there would arise the Roman Catholic Church that would hate the true followers of Jesus Christ and the Bible. Jesus saw all that coming. Paul saw that coming. That's why Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 4, in the last days, there would be two doctrines that would arise. There would be doctrines of devils. Commanding to abstain from meats and commanding to abstain from marriage. The laws of fasting of the Catholic Church and the laws of celibacy of the Catholic Church. And a good minister is going to remind his people about those things. 1 Timothy chapter 4 goes on to say. But look at Matthew 6, 7. When ye pray, use not vain repetitions. As the heathen do. For they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Roman Catholics have a little string of beads called the rosary. It's got 55 beads on it. You're supposed to go through it three times. It's got five sections of those 11 beads for the five mysteries. So you get to say 165 prayers. 150 of them are Hail Marys. And 15 of them are Our Father. Our Father is the Lord's Prayer. Hail Mary is a made-up prayer of worship to Mary. And they repeat it over and over. They sit there and thumb those beads. Hail Mary, Mother of, you know, blah, blah, blah. And go through that thing. Anybody that's ever been a Catholic knows I'm telling the total truth. Jesus knew that was coming because Jesus was a prophet. And Jesus said, if any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, he is proud and and knoweth nothing. I don't care if it's Pope John Paul II, Pope Benedict XVI, Pope Innocent III, or any other Pope. He's proud and knoweth nothing because he is standing up against the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ said, when ye pray, use not vain repetitions. There is no prayer in the Bible where they just fumble the same words to some Mary who can't help them a bit. Jesus saw the rosary coming and condemned it. Look at Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23 he saw the fact coming that Catholics would require you to call their priest father. Amen. Matthew 23. That's why I love to be Brother Crosby to the children and Brother Jonathan to the adults. That's all I am. There's nothing reverend about me. There never has been. There never will be until I'm glorified in heaven. And then we're only going to worship and reverence one being. That's right. The Lord Jesus Christ. <coughs> reverence. So are you kidding? That is so embarrassing to even hear it. Are you kidding me? Reverend. I read in Psalm 111, verse 10. Holy and reverend is his name. Amen. If there's any reverend in my life, it's my father. Because I'm supposed to reverence my father. If there's any reverend in my wife's life, <laughs> that is me. You may call me reverend. <laughs> but that wouldn't be a religious title. That would just be respect like Lord in 1 Peter 3, 6. Because a wife is supposed to reverence her husband. We're talking about religious sense. Because, can I call my father, father? Listen, are you all able to understand and interpret the Bible? Can I call my father, father? Do you know how many people? Do you know, do you know how Catholic reasons? Well, if I can't call any man father on earth, then I can't call my daddy father? Oh, come on. Can we, can we see if we can move from five IQ points to six? That is so ridiculous. Do you know why I say that? It's not because of arrogance. It's because Paul said, if any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, he is proud with an IQ of five. Knowing nothing. If you know nothing, that IQ is very, very low. And this is religious IQ that we're talking about. Bible interpretation IQ. Matthew chapter 23. They love, verse 6, the Pharisees, they love the uppermost rooms at feasts, the chief seats in the synagogues. They love greetings in the markets and to be called of men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But be not ye called Rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ, and all ye are brethren. 
Call no man your father upon the earth, for one is your father which is in heaven. Neither be ye called masters, for one is your master, even Christ. But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased. And he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. Amen. There's the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Call no man father upon earth. It doesn't mean that I can't call my father father. It means in a religious sense. I'm not supposed to call any man father on earth because in a religious sense, how many fathers do I have? One. Where is he? In heaven. I don't call, can I call my master master? I mean, can, can I call my master in an employment sense my master? Absolutely. Can I call anyone my master religiously? No. Because we have one master. I love the Bible. I love the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can go from cover to cover of the four Gospels. If you would just sit down and turn your Bible and look at the red, the black writing is inspired as well. But just look at the red words of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are full of so much wisdom. They're so wonderful. They're the wholesome words. They're the foundation upon which we've built our church because he is the head of the corner. And when he speaks, we believe it. And we know that if those who reject him shall be destroyed from among the people. I hope you love the Lord Jesus Christ and his words, and I'm sorry I didn't make more progress.